This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, our first three-timer, Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern. Where do I begin to describe Professor Galloway? Uh, I first invited him on the show after I saw uh, a YouTube video of him really describing for uh, his students at NYU Stern School of Business the four horsemen of the internet. And he discusses everything from you, uh, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook, and the subsequent impact of all these companies and what they have and where they're going, and how they're affecting the rest of the world of finance, of government and taxation, of technology, of employment. It There's nobody like him. He just chews the scenery. Uh, everybody loved his previous two conversations. This one is very different. We talk about his new book, The Four, which discusses those four companies. Uh, he has done work for most of these companies on a consulting basis, and yet that doesn't stop him from really trashing them when they deserve to be trashed about different things like what they're doing to jobs in America, how they're impacting the tax base of the federal government. And you know he calls on all of these companies, especially Google and Facebook, as media companies to be more responsible for what they do. And uh, it I don't know how else to say it. It's a fascinating conversation. With no further ado, my talk with Professor Scott Galloway. My special guest today is Scott Galloway of NYU Stern School of Business, as well as L2 Inc. He is the founder of a number of internet startups, uh, and he specializes in digital branding. I first reached out to Professor Galloway after seeing his Four Horsemen of, uh, of the Internet video on YouTube a few years ago. We've interviewed him twice before for Masters in Business. He is not only our first three times guest, he's likely to be the only one. Scott Galloway, welcome back to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. So is this SNL? Do I get a jacket? What it's, is this? it's like the Masters. Yeah. It's like a green jacket, and it says MIB on the pocket. Starbucks card? Something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's all good fun for everybody. Let's talk about your new book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. The first question is, why the four? And why these four? So uh, I believe, uh, as consumer companies, these these. Uh, companies have tapped into a basic instinct and a, and have had a bigger role or an outsized role on society, who we are as people, and uh, than almost any organizations in history, much less companies. Also, I think there's a tremendous amount to learn from these companies. And our role as professors at business school, I think, is to help people develop the currency and skills so they can create economic security for them and their families. And to really understand these companies, I think, is to understand the intersection between technology, innovation, media, and have, a, have an advantage. I think there's something we can all learn from really understanding these companies. So if I'm a, a first-year business student at Stern, what takeaway do I, do I get from these four? So uh, first year is an interesting way to look at it. I think the first year in business school is one of the highest ROI investments an individual can make. We take a kid who's making 70000 turn him into a kid who's making six figures at Stern within 14 months. And the foundations of the first year are management, operations, finance, and strategy. Uh, 
The second year, I think, is mostly a waste. It's mm-hmm. mostly there so we can charge the kids double tuition and to satisfy the teaching requirements of tenured faculty that have sort of lost their edge. If we were to stay true to that that effort to increase the ROI at the same velocity as the first year, I think we would teach them about these four companies. So I think there's tremendous, just tremendous uh, advantage and insight to really under understanding these four companies. The thing that t- you take away your first year about these four firms is that they tap into a very basic instinct. They appeal to a specific organ. And if you want to be in, I think if you want to be relevant in business, you really have to understand how these companies work and, and how to leverage them. You said a specific organ. Can you explain sure. that a little bit? So uh, I think Google is a modern man's god. Where Our advantage is, as a species is that we have a better brain, a brain that's so robust it can ask incredibly complex, nuanced questions, but our brain isn't robust enough to answer these questions. And as a society becomes more affluent and educated, its dependence upon a super being and church attendance goes down. But our, our questions don't get any easier or simpler. So there's a void that opens up and a need for a super being, and our species has always needed and adopted super beings. And I believe a modern man's God is Google. Anyone who has kids knows that when something comes off the rails with your kids, you throw up a prayer into the sky, hoping that this all-knowing authority will process your query, look at everything out there, and then send you back an answer. Will my kid be all right? We've all had that prayer if you have kids. Now it's symptoms and treatment of croup typed into the Google query box. So I think Google appeals to our need for a super being, and it's a very cerebral kind of I don't know, attraction to the brain. Moving down the heart, uh, one of the wonderful things about our species is we not only need to be loved, kids or babies that have more affection but not great nutrition have better outcomes than kids with uh, decent nutrition and and small amounts of affection. We need to love others. The strongest indicator you're going to make it to 100 years of age is how many people in your life do you care about, how many people do you love. And I think Facebook is tapping into that instinct and letting us love at scale, mostly through pictures that create empathy and greater connection and reinforcing mm-hmm. existing relationships. Amazon is our consumptive gut. It is hardwired into us just the notion of more. There's never anything is too much. There's always a desire for more. The penalty for too little throughout history has been starvation and malnutrition, which is a terrible death. The penalty for too much is lethargy, gluttony. In our age, maybe it's diabetes, but it has a pretty long lag. So open your cupboards, (laughs) open your closets. You have 10 to 100x more than you really need. It's really crazy when you think about it, how much stuff we have. But it's so hardwired into us. And the ultimate business strategy is more for less. It's the business strategy of China, Walmart, and now Amazon, which is our consumptive gut, taking in stuff, extracting what we need to survive, and sending it to our, our vascular and our skeletal and muscular how system. Much, how much lower can you go down the torso? You keep that? going. So the next place you go is to the reproductive system. And once strongest instinct is to survive. Once you know you're going to survive, and most of us wake up in the morning aren't worried about survival. We think we're going to probably going to get through the day. So it moves to the second most powerful instinct, and that is procreation. And I think Apple has tapped into our need to be attractive to other people. It used to be watches. It used to be cars. But now among the innovation class, the way you signal how attractive you are and that you have good genes is that you have the disposable income, you have the education, the innovation, you think different. The iPhone is the new signal that you are a good mate or a good potential mate and that you will pass along good genes to anyone who decides to mate with you. Let's talk about Amazon. Some of the statistics you you talk, use to discuss them are quite astonishing. of U.S. households have a gun. 52% of households have Amazon Prime. And I think the number has gone up since you you wrote that. 
how did Amazon become this behemoth Amazon? Yeah, I think the number of households now is 60%. So more households have a relationship with Prime than have a landline phone or voted in the 2016 election. That's astonishing. And if the trends continue in three years, more people are going to have a cable pipe of stuff into their house vis-a-vis Prime than have cable television. Wow. So who would have guessed that the, kind of one of the signals or symbols of, of technology and innovation over the last 10 years would be the more people have Prime than a landline phone. Amazon success, uh, their core competence, I would argue, is not operations or facility with data, it's storytelling. And if you go all the way back to Bezos' investor letter in 1997, he said, we're gonna massively invest across these truisms, these non-perishables of consumer value. I think it was selection, convenience, and value. And he's made these huge investments and stayed true to that philosophy. And it's an intoxicating vision to outline this enormous vision that results in, um, and they make progress against it every day. And as a result of this incredible storytelling, which has become, in my view, the core competence of a CEO. The ability to tell a story about what the company is trying to accomplish. Give me a a magnetic 27-year-old founder with a great rap and a degree from MIT, and I'll show you someone who can go raise $50 million right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's your ability, storytelling, you know, we used to call it salesmanship, but storytelling and the narrative you're able to put together is really powerful. You, you see Jeff Bezos speak, you want to buy, you just want to buy stock. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the storytelling has resulted in the access to the cheapest capital, I think, in the history of modern business. Uh, Amazon can access the debt markets for a lower cost of capital than China, regardless of them breaking even which is, they've changed the compact with markets. They invest 100 cents on the dollar back in the consumer experience, and their stock continues to go up. And we've never seen that before. So versus Facebook, Apple, or Google, who have to invest 60, 70, or only 90 cents on the dollar back in the consumer experience, Amazon invests all 100 cents on the dollar back in the consumer experience, which means that they, quite frankly, just offer a better value to the consumer and are sort of playing unfair, if you will. So let's talk a little bit about playing unfair. Uh, Another quote of yours I really like. The wealthiest man in the 20th century mastered the art of minimum wage employees selling you stuff. The wealthiest man of the 21st century is mastering the science of zero wage robots selling you stuff. Is it really that simple? Is it robotics and automation is a defining advantage of Amazon? So to be fair, Amazon is hiring a lot of people. Uh, such that they can take they can take more share of retail and other sectors, and they'll be more efficient at it. And by the way, we've seen this throughout economic history mm-hmm. that innovators figure out a way to take a bunch of medium-paying jobs and turn them into fewer higher-paying jobs. We've just never seen people this good at it before. The so s- the scale is hard and the speed. To it's very hard to to replace these these jobs that are going away as quickly. So Amazon needs one person for every two that Macy's or Nordstrom need to service the same amount of business. So if Amazon grows its business $20 billion this year, which they will, we're going to lose about 50,000 people in what is kind of a flat growth, zero growth retail economy, meaning um, the Yankee Stadium, fill it up with cashiers, merchants, and security guards, and you're kind of out of business. Now, they're not doing anything wrong, but it's happening at a scale we haven't we haven't seen before. Amazon really is uh, trying to take humans out of the equation with technology, and that's why it's so. This notion of 
uh, and I apologize, I'm getting political, the notion of a wall, unless you're going to build a wall to keep out robots, right. you know, it doesn't, it's not going to help much, right? It's automation that's destroying jobs, so not, 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 uh, not other labor. L- let's talk about cashiers and technology. Yeah. Amazon sets up their cashierless stores. You go in, you just shop, and you leave. Yeah. The store knows what you bought and automatic, automatically bills you. This is just a small little test run. What? How did that ripple out across the entire retail universe when Amazon teed this up? There are more cashiers in the U.S. than teachers. And probably a third of them lost their job when that one Amazon Go store opened because Every retail boardroom now, and I'm in a lot of them, is talking about store optimization, which is Latin for fire cashiers. <laughs> and what's interesting, Barry, is if you look at the retailers that are surviving in the age of Amazon, they're the ones making incremental investments in what I would call not artificial intelligence, but organic intelligence. Investing in the golden aprons at Home Depot, the cast at Sephora, the, the blue shirts at Best Buy. People no longer go to stores for, pe- uh, for products, they go for people. If you're gonna walk into a store, you want expertise. You want someone to get you the right product and get you out of there as quickly as possible. You want someone to make a connection with you because you can get the product online probably for less. The, I, I have no doubt about that. My experience has been with Home Depot that they went through a period of cutting uh, headcount and then Lowe's comes along mm-hmm. and suddenly Home Depot is starting to hire people again and you can find someone in the aisles. And I think the competition forced that. Are we going to see that same move towards expertise in other retailers, or is it just these narrow specialty retailers that requires an expertise? I think uh, uh, the answer is yes. So Williams-Sonoma, you're going to find someone who's passionate about cooking, but Home Depot does a fantastic job. They're very well trained. And again, I would argue that the opportunity is to zag while Amazon zigging and make these big investments in incremental human capital. The original gangster here is Starbucks. Mm-hmm. They spend more money on employee benefits than they spend on coffee beans. I, I use the app. It, it's fantastic. I come out yeah. of the subway. I order breakfast. By the time I walk the three blocks to my office, it's waiting for me. Nobody else does that. Yeah. So now, based on the amount of money stored in on the Starbucks loyalty program, I think they're one of the 10 largest banks in the U.S. right now. It's, a, it's probably the best use of an app of a retailer out there. But what doesn't get as much press because we're you know we're all obsessed with innovation as it relates to technology is this crazy rational investment they made in baristas. And when right. you walk in, not only does it smell good, but I think there's a nice light feeling because I think the people working there just don't, you know, don't hate their jobs. They may be going, they may be getting a degree at, you know, Arizona State, they have health care and they can afford to get they attract the best people. And I think that creates a different environment. And look what they do. They make you a specialty coffee, and they get you in and out of there really fast, and the people seem pretty friendly and, and pretty nice. So I, I'm a big fan of believing in, and, and this is a big issue. I think what we need is, I don't want to say we need left, less Jeff Bezos, but we definitely need is more Henry Fords, and that is people who say, I could pay my employees 2 bucks an hour, but I'm going to pay them 5 because I think it's important we build a middle class. What I was really disappointed I spoke at a, a big investor conference right after Jeff Bezos, and he said that he was a big supporter of universal guaranteed income. And originally I thought, what a great guy, progressive values. And then I increasingly got disappointed that the arguably the best mind in business, the person who probably has more insight into the future of business, has kind of given up on what I believe is a key component of American identity, something that is key to our relevance and I think in, in happiness as we get older. And that is a job. And I'd like to see all of the CEOs in tech say, 
our objective here is not only to increase shareholder value, our objective is to massively increase this wonderful thing that serves as a key component of our self-esteem and our identity as a nation, and that is work and a job. In the Amazon chapter, you push back a little bit on, on Bezos, saying if you're concerned about universal income, well, then why don't you pay your taxes? So they're not doing anything wrong, but uh, just as an example, since the Great Recession, Walmart has paid $64 billion in corporate income tax, and Amazon has paid one4 That's a huge, huge disadvantage for Walmart. Because Amazon has mastered this new compact with the marketplace with storytelling where run your business at break even and you have no leakage to um, the government. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's a brilliant strategy and the markets have put up with it. The but there qu- is a social cost to that. Well, the question is the following. If, if the most successful company in the world, which a lot of people would argue Amazon is right now, pays no f- corporate income tax, how do we pay our soldiers, our firefighters, and our social workers? And taxes are, to a certain extent, a zero-sum game. The answer is, well, the less successful companies got to pay more. And then people say, okay, but any company could adopt this strategy, go to Mm. zero break-even. But what we have in the marketplace right now is once you go profitable, there really is no going back. If if a company, if any sort of old economy company said we're going to make massive investments in technology and go to break even, be punished by the market, go down thirty or fifty percent, yeah. and they might they might incite or catalyze or ignite a downward spiral that would be inexorable. So it's an unusual situation. Good for Amazon; they figured it out. But I wonder if at some point, if this keeps happening, mm-hmm. where all the companies that get the majority soak up the majority of the ca- cheap capital in the marketplace are running at break even, if we might end up in a system. Like, and I'm not saying this is the right economic model, but in Brazil, they have a taxation system where once you get to a certain point, you pay a certain AMT on top mm. line revenues. But should should a company be able to get to a half a trillion dollars in value and not pay any meaningful amount of taxes? That's I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's a question worth asking. So two brick and mortar questions I have to ask. One is Walmart paid something like $3.3 billion dollars for Jet.com, and, and you describe that as the most expensive set of hair plugs for a corporate midlife crisis. Yeah. Was that a bad purchase? Were they able to make any hay of it? Or was that simply a, oh, Amazon's eating our lunch, we have to compete? So I said at the time that I thought it was going to be the biggest write-down in retail and it was a bad acquisition. And the bottom line is I was wrong. Because if you look at a year later what's happened— Walmart has been able to announce year-on-year e-commerce sales growth of 60-plus percent because of the acquisition of Jet. And being able to get their mojo back and kind of get off their heels for a company that's got a $300 billion market cap or 270 whatever it is now, is worth $3 billion. So was the company, was Jet.com worth $3 billion? I don't think so. Was it worth $3 billion to Walmart? It looks like it was. I was wrong. So let's talk about another giant acquisition, Mm -hmm. only this time it's the opposite. Um, uh, uh, an internet play buying a brick-and-mortar routine, which is Amazon buying Whole Foods. What does Whole Foods do for Amazon? I think it's transformative. I think the acquisition of Whole Foods will be to Amazon what Facebook was, excuse me, what Instagram was to Facebook. I think it's going to be the best acquisition of the last, since Facebook acquired Instagram. Mm -hmm. You think about this, Barry. Amazon's strategy is to create a relationship with you that's so intense across Prime that you begin to buy everything. And they're Mm -hmm. going to move to artificial intelligence and zero-click ordering. 
Zero and, click ordering. Zero click ordering. Explain that this is the two box theory. Is that right? That's exactly right. Pretty soon they're going to say, Barry, we know you. We love you. You love us. We have your credit card history. We have. We know where you live. We have a warehouse within 20, 20 miles of you. We're gonna we're gonna start sending you stuff before you know you want it because we think you <laughs> we know and we'll get 80, 90 percent right. Send the stuff you don't want back and manicure using uh, Alexa. Say Alexa, I'm leaving for two weeks. Alexa, send me six quotes for auto insurance via email. Alexa, I like Stella Artois. I don't like Lagunitas IPA. And you'll manicure it. And you're just going to give all your low consideration, tedious purchases, which are kind of 90% of our purchases, the to Amazon. The non-fun buys, the junk yeah. stuff that we all have, toilet paper and... This is if you know, I don't know that if they're doing this, but if I was running Amazon strategy, this is I'd be focused on a pilot test in a college area called Prime Squared or zero click ordering. They'll they'll do it. They'll announce it. There'll be some kinks. People will love it. It'll go take Prime households from thirteen hundred dollars a year average spend to seven thousand. The stock will become anti gravity. The the entire world's going to freak out and we're going to break them up. Let's discuss the cult, quote unquote, of Apple. How did that ever develop? So we have our religion. We, you know, Steve Jobs is our Jesus Christ. This is we no longer worship at the altar of kindness or character. We worship at the altar of innovation and shareholder value. And this is the individual whose vision and genius created more shareholder value than any company in history, which is effectively how we decide in a capitalist society who our Jesus Christ is. And the iPhone has become the new object of deification. It's the new cross. They shouldn't call it the iPhone X. They should call it the iPhone cross. It has a special place in our lives. We we deem it holier than any other object in the in the world. I, I would argue at this point. And this is a company that decided we no longer want to be the best house in the worst neighborhood. Computer hardware, which appeals to a rational organ, the brain, when the brain is a terrible competitor, starches out all the margin. We want to appeal to the reproductive organs, which are irrational decision-making organs. And as a result, people will decide they want to look cool, they want to communicate success and innovation, and that they have good genes to mates. And you end up with the margins, and, and this Apple has the operating margins somewhere between Hermes and Ferrari. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit, because the iPhone accounts for less than 20% of all of the smartphones shipped globally. But it accounts for 92% of the industry's profits. How can you dominate both sales volume and margin? They've pulled off the impossible in business through a focus on uh, appeal to our desire to be more attractive to others and becoming a luxury brand. First tech company to become a luxury brand that is both the low-cost producer, the most popular phone in the world, outstanding supply chains as they secure the components at the lowest price at the same time that the premium price product. No company has ever pulled this off in history. The auto equivalent would be um, an auto company with the margins of Ferrari and the production volumes of Toyota. So as a result, Apple this quarter will do double the profits Amazon has done in its entire history. Apple will do more than the profits of the other three combined. And you need to get Toyota, Daimler, Benz, Unilever, and P&G wrapped up to begin to talk about the profits of Apple, we don't. We really don't have a sense for the scale of just what an unbelievable profit machine Apple is. So your big bold insight some time ago was that Apple wasn't a tech company, but it was a luxury brand, which is very counterintuitive and not especially obvious. How did you work your way towards that that conclusion? The components of our luxury brand. I mean, it's literally. Play for play, they they sat down in some room at some point and said, "We are a luxury brand. 
What do luxury brands have in common? They have an iconic founder, right? So we have that. They have a focus on artisanship and design and art. We have that. They have a focus on vertical retail. So Apple's much more like a Vuitton store than it is a Best mm-hmm. Buy. And that was really the genius move. The, the crazy irrational decision of Ford integrate into stores, I think, is the one decision that created more shareholder value than any decision in the history of business. Can you imagine Steve Jobs, and only he could have pulled this off, going into his board in the early 2000s and said, you know what, I have an idea. We're doing okay, not great, but I have an idea, stores. This was when stores were literally starting to, to begin their march downward, and mm-hmm. now they have between 5 and $6 billion in leases on stores. The reason why Samsung is not is always behind Apple in terms of brand equity and hasn't generated as much shareholder value is not because of technology. They have more software engineers than Microsoft. I would argue the, the Samsung Galaxy is a better phone. It's because they don't have vertical distribution. Apple's decided in order to control the experience and be a luxury brand like a Vuitton, a Bottega Veneta, a Gucci, you gotta control the moment of contact with distribution. And they made this crazy rational decision to forward integrate. So they have vertical retail. They put models on stage. They put Chrissy Turlington. It's right. not a it's not a product launch, it's a fashion show. They buy pages in Vogue magazine. This is literally they have literally stolen the luxury playbook, and it has been the most enormously value-accreting decision in history. Low-cost producer, premium-priced product. No other business in the history of business has been able to pull this off. So somebody else you push back on in the book is Steve Jobs, and, and you wrote, you would be amazed at how many people still believe, against all evidence, that Steve Jobs actually invented all of Apple's great products. So... Why the no warm fuzzies uh, for for the founder of of Apple? So, I, 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 admittedly, Steve Jobs a genius, um, tremendous tremendous wealth creation, an innovator, an icon for business. I think it's an example of again that we worship at the altar of innovation as opposed to kindness and character. There's some personal attributes and behavior here that you wouldn't describe as being you know, uh, making him a quote-unquote wonderful man. But he is largely seen, I would argue, as kind of the hero of a capitalist society. So I, I don't, I think it's an indicator that, that you know, our heroes are different. I don't know. I think the four, we've, we've started to believe, personify these companies and think of them as heroes. And we need to be honest that these companies aren't going to take care of us when we get older. They aren't concerned with the condition of our soul. They're, they're for-profit companies, and they're doing what they should be doing, and that's maximizing profits. But I wonder if sometime, because we personify them, we have so much admiration for this person, and we think of us as being in a relationship, that we grant them the mother of all hall passes, and they are not subject to the same scrutiny as the rest of business. Let's talk a little bit about Facebook. You note they own three of the five platforms that got to 100 million users the fastest. Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram. People, I recall, laughed at the Instagram mm-hmm. purchase. Oh, look, at this kid doesn't know what the hell he's doing. He's wasting this money. How, how did Instagram work out as a purchase? Well, you, yeah, you know the answer. A billion dollars, everyone second-guessed it. It's probably worth somewhere between 60 and $100 billion now by most traditional metrics. Probably the best acquisition in tech of the last 20 years. And... A big, bold bet, just in, in, incredibly smart. Visuals kept the growth going, maintained passion among millennials. It's just a, it's been a, it's been a fantastic acquisition. You were talking about apps. If the phone is the most important screen in our lives and the most important technology device, 80% of time spent on a phone is in-app. 
And mm-hmm. six of the top 10 apps are owned by Facebook. So the phone, wow. the phone isn't a piece of technology. It's basically the utility for Facebook, Inc. It's an app delivery ve- vehicle. For Facebook. Wow. And I spend as little time on Facebook as I humanly can, but I'm not their prime demographic. Yeah, we're no longer the market, right? right. Uh, it's millennials now have more disposable income than boomers, and that's they're the most influential. And if you look at what a lot of consumer brands now have in common that are dramatically growing, their shareholder value is uh, as a competence, a core competence, is Instagram. That's interesting. So you talk in the book about the creepy factor. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons I spend so little time on Facebook is that I've learned if I'm logged in on any device on Facebook and I'm looking at an ad because I'm looking for some information, if I go to a website, mm-hmm. that damn ad follows me around the internet for the next four weeks. And I despise it. I just, I'm just i not looking to buy a Corvette. I just was curious as mm-hmm. to some information on it. So the only way to avoid that is to never be logged into Facebook except for the moment you're using Facebook. I find that creepy. The millennials don't really seem to find that creepy at all. So that that's that's you know, triple A ball. That's not even the major leagues of creepiness. What you're talking about is retargeting and that happens right. on any website. They drop a cookie and it follows you around the web. But the things you could do, you could set up ad blockers, you could set up do not yeah. you could retake some of your privacy, Facebook, you really are at the mercy of, of Zuck well, and Company. Well, you'll have scared, creepier moments than this. You'll be at, I, I don't know, for some reason I think you would like Springston. Or, you sure. Know, you're at a Springsteen concert and your Facebook app is open, which means it has a mic, and they use it to target ads, and you'll get an ad for Springsteen's latest album while you're at the concert. So it gets— That's Minority Report. That's right out of the getting film. right there. But here's the thing. Our generation is a little bit— freaked out about that stuff. The Europeans are much more concerned with it, but millennial Americans who are kind of setting the tone for shareholder value creation, they're very comfortable with with an invasion of privacy as long as there's utility in it. So the number of people who clear their cookies is really small. Mm -hmm. The fact that Google Maps is amazing, but Google knows where you are and could I find it creepy when Uber sends me a receipt showing me what the path was I took to get home and where I was. See, so the difference have- between the two is my ex- life experience with Google is I'm okay with them having that that information because yep. they don't creep me out with it, but Facebook does. There's also a difference in complexion. When you listen to Eric Schmidt speak, he goes out of his way to say that whenever we release data, we anonymize, we get to mm-hmm. go to a lot of lengths not to connect specific identity with your searches. Because if you really want to talk about social chaos and the hack <laughs> that would be the worst hack in the history of mankind is if someone hacked into Google and could put, post your name, your face above everything you've put into a Google search query mm-hmm. box. I mean, really think about everything you've put in that search query box and you're going to get terrified Fast. Not only well, that's what incognito um, browsers are for. If you're really doing something and no one does contemptible, that. No really? Does, well, I, as far as I know, I don't, I'm I, old school. I guess. Yeah. Well, you're. My sense is you're in the one percent. I don't really? think. I think most people do, do, and they have absolutely no. We trust Google with questions and information about ourselves. Uh-huh. Not only what ailments, but we have what we're worried about getting. Not only what, if we're getting divorced, are we thinking about divorce? It, there would be social chaos For sure. if Google got hacked. Now, that's the scariest thing that could happen, but Eric Schmidt and Google are smart to put forward this 
at least the impression they understand how scary it might be. Mm-hmm. Facebook, since Beacon concerns the age and the youth of the company, the average age of a Cleveland Cavaliers basketball player is 29. The average age of a Facebook employee is 28. Wow. And I believe that that youth means that they are not quite as concerned about some of the stuff. Uh, it feels as if, it, while Google has the potential be, to be the king of creepy, mm-hmm. where it might happen is Facebook because they seem less concerned. So let's talk about Zuckerberg and Schmidt. These are two really fascinating CEOs. Let, let's grade him. What are you? Zuckerberg is what twenty eight? Is that is that his age? How has he done as a CEO? Has is he an upside surprise? Yeah, I think you've I think you've uh, you've. You've you've put him in a time machine. I think he's early thirties now. Okay. Look, he's a he's an extraordinarily talented young man. Best acquisitions in business history. Most successful thing in the history of mankind is probably the Facebook feed. Mm-hmm. Over two billion people have a meaningful relationship with, with Facebook. That's more than capitalism, communism. You know, the only thing I could think that has more meaningful relationships might be soccer. So, there's just no getting around it. He's he's an incredible. You know, gonna go, you know, first time Hall of Fame CEO. I think he's fantastic. Mark Andreessen described him as a learning machine, yeah. which is really fascinating because that helps to explain why some of these acquisitions have been so insightful, so ahead of the curve. What about what about Eric Schmidt? How do you rank him as a, a tech CEO? All, all of these guys are incredible uh, mm-hmm. guys and gals. I sure some. They're all. I mean, just uh, just incredible. People, managers who've created tremendous shareholder value. I don't. I don't think there's any getting around it. I think Mark Zuckerberg has had a very interesting fork in the road. I think he has the ability right now to to really um, mess up Facebook and his reputation. I think we're on the precipice of a seminal tobacco industry moment with this potentially congressional hearings. When remember in the '80s, when tobacco executives stood up in front of Congress and it was a bunch of sixty-something white guys, and they all lied. With they raised hand, hand, with their hand. I raised, do not believe tobacco right. is addictive. We may have another Does not one cause of those cancer. Right. We we may have another one of those moments when a bunch of thirty and forty-year-old men and women stand in front of Congress and say, "We're not a media company." So let's talk a little bit about that. Facebook and Google are they media companies? Hundred percent. A hundred percent. There's no doubt in your mind. Okay, Facebook, spending a billion dollars on original content, spending money on sports leagues for them to produce original content. Campbell Brown gets hired to oversee uh, news. Fifty percent of Americans get 60 percent of their news from Facebook, and you run content. I'm sorry, you run advertising against this content. Sounds like media to me. I mean, I I don't... They define what it is to be a media company, and then they come up with these excuses, well... We have more technologists than journalists. The NBA has more people working in technology than players. Are they a tech company or a sports league? They're a sports league that leverages technology. So your business model kind of defines who you are. They are. Facebook has warmly embraced the celebrity, the margins, and the influence of a media company and has decided that they're allergic to the responsibilities. It is totally unacceptable. So what can we do to get companies like Facebook and Google to accept their role as responsible media companies? It's a fair question. Um, So you saw it looks like the UK is going to regulate them as media companies. I'm not entirely sure what that means. Um, There's different ways advertisers can boycott. Consumers have to decide what what they should do. But I think what's going to happen is you're going to see the mother of all fines 
but uh, against one or more of these companies. But it's not going to come from where we think it's going to come from. It's going to come out of Europe. The the big war brewing uh, is going to start where a lot of the major conflicts have started. It's going to start in continental Europe, and you're going to see them go after um, one or all of these companies. But the weaponization of these platforms by an intelligence arm of Russia, in my opinion, is the tipping point where people are just fed up with these guys. So what is that going to mean for their actual business? You know, if you want to boycott somebody whose CEO said something really stupid and not buy their Twinkies or whatever it is, you can do that. Where are you going to go for search? Where are you going to go for social media? There really aren't competitors to either of these companies. I, I think you're right. I don't think it actually impacts their business. I think their earnings are going to be really strong in the midst of all of this. Where mm-hmm. I think it does impact them is I think uh, uh, Washington, but most likely Brussels, is going to step in and regulate and or levy the mother of all fines against them. You also There's a non-zero probability here, Barry that one or more of these companies is banned from a European country. If you're if you're Australia right now, and Amazon's showing up to Australia, I've been getting calls from all the big media mm-hmm. outlets in Australia saying, okay, Amazon's showing up. If Amazon, if Australia looks at, or any European country looks at the countries that have let these guys in, and then looks at China. Mm-hmm. China let them in for just long enough to steal their IP, and then right. back to local entrepreneur, and then captured all the value themselves. So basically out, right. knock off some ripoffs and then kicked them out. Now, that's not free trade. It's not our Western values. Who who is smarter? Who is was is is the Chinese model the wrong model? If you're Italy, and you had a you had the chance to do this again, let in Google, Facebook, Amazon, or Apple, or support a, lo- a local entrepreneur, steal the IP, and do it yourself. Who's done better, Italy or China? No doubt about it. It's China. So we may see one of these guys. I just wouldn't be surprised. Say, so you know what, Facebook, Google, you're out. Fascinating. Can you stick around a little bit? Love to. We have been speaking with Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern, discussing his new book, The Four. Uh, If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue to discuss all things technology. Uh, You can find that wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott, for doing this. This is—I uh, always find it Thank fascinating to, to speak with you about this. You you are interested in many of the same things I'm interested in, but from a very different context, perspective, um, viewpoint, and I find it tremendously elucidating and, and interesting Thanks, on, on, on subjects that, that I'm just completely enamored with. Before we get to our usual standard podcast questions, there are some other questions we didn't get to that I have to I have to jump in on because I find your responses and your your perspectives really uh, very refreshing. Um, and I'm just wrestling rustling papers as I work through this. Um, one of the questions that I didn't get to on Facebook 
was the concept that they pulled off the greatest bait and switch in business history. Tell us about that. So Facebook early on said, you have these fan pages, and wouldn't it be nice if someone could self-identify as a fan of the brand, raise their hand, and follow or like your page, your brand page. So it set off an arms race because it became a vanity metric for whether the brand got it or not. And any brand in any category that was number one in terms of Facebook likes or fans, they started ranking them. And it was an, it was an indicator and a proxy for how innovative the company was. And the way you built this fan base was with advertising on Facebook. And companies spent hundreds of millions of dollars building their fan bases and their Facebook followings. And then Facebook said, you know what? Just kidding. <laughs> we own these people. And the organic reach went from 100%, meaning all the content these brands put out reached their fans. And it's now basically zero. So this was the equivalent of you build a house, you pay the county, you pay your taxes, you're about to move in, and the county shows up, puts new locks on the door, and says, just kidding. We own it, and you got to rent it from us. I think this was the greatest bait and switch in media history in a, in a, in a long time. And it speaks to Facebook's power because they were able – to get away with it. And then the new one, I mean, I mean, all these companies, any economy growing greater than 5 or 6% a year in GDP, the core competence is theft. It was the core competence of the U.S. in the 19th century, stealing textile and manufacturing technology out of Ireland and the U.K. It's China's core competence now over the last 20 years. And Facebook, Google, all of them, when at the end of the day, when you look at them, they're great at theft. They're great at taking other people's content, slicing it up, and charging for it and convincing old media that this is the new way of the world. The stupidest thing we could have done at the New York Times was to buy into this lie that information wanted to be free and have Google come into our servers, chop up our data, and then monetize it at 10x what we could monetize it for because we didn't know how to we didn't know how to do search. Let, let's talk about that a little bit because in the book, that's a very famous quote, information wants to be free, but that's really only half the quote, isn't it? What what is the other half of the quote? The no, it, it, uh, it, it, it you mean the original quote? The original quote. Well, the original it was taken out of context, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. It, it's it, the person who initially said it. Uh, Whole said, Earth catalog. Yeah, yeah. Said it basically was making the opposite point. But then Marissa Mayer in front of Congress said information wants to be free, and it all goes back to biology. Every old economy company wants to be seen hanging out with the quarterback and the prom queen, and announce mm -hmm. a deal with Apple, Amazon, Facebook, or Google. By the way, anytime you're at CAN, anytime you're at CS, you see all these old economy companies issuing press releases talking about their quote-unquote partnership with Google, their partnership with Amazon. Right. Usually these companies partner with old economy companies the way a virus partners with a host. What you never see is a press release from an old economy company saying, our partnership with Facebook has resulted in us beating earnings. Right. Those are the press releases you never see. Then Facebook had instant articles. Again, these old media companies just don't learn and go on this thing and recognize that all they're doing is making these guys the new operating system instead of their own media companies. Right. So uh, th these companies, all of us, and again, I'm, I'm going back to Bob, all of us have been in a relationship with someone much better looking than us and take more abuse than we should. This is the equivalent of entering into a relationship where you subject yourself to a ton of abuse because these are the hottest guy or girl in the class. Mm -hmm. And it's happening across all of industry. Everyone is deciding, is trying to position themselves as the leader or as the innovator, as cool and I get it, and doing deals with these guys. When the best thing these the companies and sectors could do economically is bind together and basically shut these guys off. In print media, we should have shut Google off. We should have, and I propose this, 
in a board meeting of the New York Times and was basically laughed out of the room. The stupidest thing we've ever did in print media was we let Google crawl our data. Bloomberg doesn't let Google crawl their data no, on their terminals. Why? Because they've gotten pretty used to that $25,000 a year fee because they realize information doesn't want to be free. Information, like the rest of us, wants to be scarce and expensive. So we talk about the coolest guys in the room, coolest girls in the room. You talk about the four. Who are possible contenders for number five? We haven't discussed Uber. We haven't discussed yeah. Airbnb. Who do you have down as your fifth if you were going to bump someone out? Who would move into the fourth slot? So in the book, I have a chapter on something I call the T-algorithm, and I try to suss out six or eight factors that I think are the underpinnings of all of these companies to try and identify who could next reach a half a trillion dollars in value. And I would have said a year, 18 months ago, it was Uber because I thought Uber could threaten Amazon on the last mile and be sort of the last mile circulatory system for this incredible last mile infrastructure that a bunch of people are going to need, maybe self-driving cars. I think they're no longer in the running because, of because A, it's clear that they can't, unlike Amazon, they can't spend their competition into the ground. Uh, so I don't think it's going to be Uber. If you were to pick a fifth, my money right now would be on, in terms of a consumer business, you might argue Microsoft's already the fifth horseman. But in terms of the new unicorns, my money would be on Netflix. Because at the end of the day, these four are operating systems. They're operating systems for media, shopping, information, our connections. Netflix has become an operating system for the second most important screen in the house, and that's our television. The best way to know who you are would be to get your Google search history. The second best way, I think, to get a snapshot of someone who the, of who they are is to look at their Netflix home screen. Millennials spend more time watching Netflix than the rest of cable television combined. So even at its 150-plus billion-dollar market cap, Netflix should technically be trading for more than the rest of cable television, all of them combined. And I don't know if it is yet. The mother of all battles, everyone obsesses over Google versus Facebook or Walmart versus Amazon. The mother of all battles is coming in 2019, and it's going to be Amazon versus Netflix. So isn't the solution here because Amazon and Apple are now competing on content? Mm -hmm. Why hasn't Apple stepped up and bought Netflix? It makes perfect sense. It integrates well, and it allows them to really prevent... Amazon from running away via Prime. It's a super interesting idea, Barry. And you know what? Everyone used to say, well, Disney could acquire Netflix. Disney can't afford Netflix any longer. Right. Apple and can do it with cash, which is insane. Apple, it's really interesting. That would be that would be really, that would be earth, earth-shaking. I, I would like to say I've been thinking about that for months, but literally yeah. as you were describing it, it's like, oh, that's a perfect- yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yet. I really hadn't thought of that. That's, Apple's one of the few- maybe one of two companies right now in the world that could pull that off. Easily. Yeah. And it makes sense. It, you know, the Beats acquisition took a while to integrate, and I don't know how successful it has been on the programming side. It has been successful on the hardware side. But Apple, in my opinion, and I say this as a fanboy, Mac Classic in 1989, yep. I find Apple's software isn't as sharp as it once was. Hmm. And I have a running list of complaints about, so Richard Thaler keeps a, a list of complaints about uh, human cognitive errors and mm -hmm. that ultimately led to his whole philosophy. I've been doing that with software and my beef about software isn't that it's eating the world, it's that it's eating the world too slowly. We should already be in the future and we're not. Mm -hmm. And I could I have dozens of examples of why is this so old school when it should know what I want. By the way, Google comes closest 
to actually delivering what I want. Um, but Apple, Netflix, it just it'll solve a lot of problems for both companies, including that deep, deep uh, pocket that Apple has for funding acquisitions, funding um, new content from Netflix. I think it's a super a super interesting idea. You're gonna, I mean, Apple right now is so interesting because if Apple. So I think Amazon's going to get to a trillion dollars before Apple, despite the fact Apple's at about seven fifty and Amazon's at four fifty or five hundred. And I think the seminal moment that people will look back and say, "How did Amazon pass Apple?" It'll be quite frankly Alexa beating up Siri, mm-hmm. which is one of my big beefs that they had a five year head start over they everybody and they blew it. They absolutely owned it three years ago, even just thirty six months ago. If you'd said voice, mm-hmm. you would have said Siri. Right. And now Alexa's seventy percent market share in the home. Uh, you know, you have one of those moments where you think, "Wow, this is the future." My kids are now using. I think it's called the Amazon Show. We have, mm-hmm. and it's like remember the the future from two thousand one Space Odyssey, where someone brings up a TV and starts talking to people. Mm-hmm. It's finally happened. My kids, my seven year old, is calling me on my phone, and the quality is pretty clear. It's very good. And then and then he says, "Bye, Daddy." He says, "He says Amazon, hang up. Um, Alexa, hang up." And just like that, and it's just and it's natural. So you have an entire generation of kids getting used to having a relationship with Alexa, who will be the arbiter of the media and the things they buy. I mean, Amazon, I, 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 don't, I don't like to make stock recommendations, but I can't help myself. <laughs> Amazon, I, you know, it's is a double gonna, from here, according to I think you. It's a du- I, think, I think it's a double. And then we're going to freak out and break them up, but so, so it's Alexa, skyrocket. Alexa has this huge advantage over Siri in that Alexa yeah. is jacked into your Wi-Fi. So it always has yeah. access to a huge database and perhaps I'm too harsh on Siri because it's dependent on the cell connection, which I'm right here in Midtown Manhattan and half the time calls drop, the data drops. It's mm-hmm. So last year I'm in Rome and I discover this square Roman pizza. It's mm-hmm. it's not Sicilian pizza. It's something totally different and it's delicious. We're going to have an Alexa phone to Prime members. Why wouldn't you well, say Prime members? Well, because the Fire phone crashed and burns. That won't stop them. Well, we'll see what happens. My Siri story is one of the guys in my office says, Roman pizza just opened up three yep. blocks. We go over there. We eat it. It's amazing. Mani in pasta is the name of it. I take a picture of the pizza. I take a picture of the with my iPhone. I take a picture of the store. It says mm-hmm. Roman pizza. Mm-hmm. And I go to, it's raining. I'm holding an umbrella. I speak into the phone through Siri. And I say, authentic Roman pizza now in New York City. And, uh, you know, it's raining and all my glasses on. I'm one-handing it. I hit send. And when the tweet goes out, it comes back, authentic woman pizza now in New York City. And, of course, the responses on Twitter are hilarious. But I'm right there saying, wait a second. I just took a photo of pizza. Mm-hmm. I'm standing in front of something that says authentic Roman pizza. How did you mess this up? What is woman pizza? Check a database. There's no such thing. Roman pizza is a thing. And that sort of, how did Siri blow that, makes me wonder. They really, you're right. They absolutely blew it. Really. And voice, the next battleground for trillions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars in creation of shareholder value it's been the phone screen for the last 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. The next major battleground 
is the home and its voice. That is going to be the place that fortunes are made and lost because when you think about where you make most of your decisions, where there's a ton of influence around purchase, around media, it's happening in the home, and you're not necessarily attached to your phone like you are when you're outside of the home. That's right. It's on the charger. And I'll tell you, you start to see with your kids how frictionless and easy it is to start barking commands into the sky. Uh Just say, just all you literally have to do is say, Alexa, you know, order me this, or Alexa, what time, or Alexa, pull up Scotland versus, you know, Slovenia World Cup final, and your TV, we're going to have, Alexa is in a position to be our shepherd to the consumer world, and will get to be the arbiter of what we buy and what we see, and whoever owns that voice Mm -hmm. is going to be hugely powerful. You know, if I had a guess five years ago who would own voice, Google is the company that has the technology to do that best. We forget how spectacular YouTube is Mm -hmm. and Google Maps. By the way, YouTube, another two or three billion dollar purchase that on the day of announcement, the rise in Google stock price essentially paid for it. So YouTube was free and, and YouTube is always my pushback to, oh, Google is just a search company. That is an immense repository of video that is cataloged, structured, Mm -hmm. searchable. Mm -hmm. So there is an element of search, but it's some ungodly amount of a billion hours a week or some crazy number of video gets uploaded to YouTube every week. And then Google Maps and Street View, the entire world is available to you from your computer in a way that was barely imaginable 10 years ago. Yeah, Google is arguably the greatest concentration of IQ in the history of mankind. Mm -hmm. It probably dwarfs the Manhattan Project, NASA. They do have, I think, the smartest people and a great culture and a focus on engineering and and innovation, and you just can't count them out. But they're playing catch-up in the home right now. A little bit. They Well, Nest was supposed to jumpstart them to the whole consumer side of things. Uh, the self-driving car, that's another bit of technological um, wizardry. They're way ahead of everybody else. Not that they're not going to catch up, but you got to you can never count them out because they are so smart at what they do. Great, great at what they do, and have ninety percent share of a marketplace search that is now a bigger by dollar volume market than the entire advertising market of every nation, with the exception of the U.S. That's amazing. From a pure traditional antitrust standpoint, they're the most vulnerable from regulation because they have 90-plus points of share. I actually don't think they're the ones that are going to be broken up, though. I think it's going to become more political and more sort of fear-based, and I think it's going to be um, either uh, Facebook or Amazon because I think people are going to start getting angry. Hmm. That's, that's really interesting. So there are some questions I didn't get to. I asked who the fifth horseman was. Um, your last comment makes me ask want to ask the other question of the four mm-hmm. uh, where uh, uh, history teaches us that every company is um, mortal mm-hmm. which of these four companies is the first to die so we've been talking about every every place you look at where Amazon is competing against the other three it's winning mm-hmm. in media Amazon media groups growing faster than Facebook or Google in cloud st- it's crazy. cloud it's number one and streaming video they've gone from number seven share of primetime viewing to number three computer hardware amazon echo is probably the most innovative hardware part of last year's the company that feels the most vulnerable right now i would argue is uh facebook because facebook i think is in the midst of this unfolding 
case study and how not to handle a crisis. Mm -hmm. The damage a crisis inflicts on a company isn't a crisis itself, it's how it's handled. Tylenol came out of their crisis um, stronger than ever because sure. they overreact. The key is overreacting. And they in, cleared, in a positive way. In a positive way. They cleared every bottle of Tylenol from every shelf in America. Even though that was n absolutely not necessary. They knew exactly what group. And expensive. Right. They it, could have said, isolated this group incident, and these four things we can remove. Isolated incident, da-da-da, don't worry about it. Right? Exxon said, oh, this isn't a big deal. They couldn't find the, the CEO. What we're seeing from Facebook is textbook how not to handle a crisis. A series of half measures. 250 people. Oh, okay. You're really angry about that? A thousand. Oh, and by the way, it's impossible. We don't want to be arbiters of truth. Well, you sure as hell can try Facebook. We're not a media company. Oh, my gosh. We're about to have the tobacco testifying in Congress moment. If Sheryl Sandberg or Mark Zuckerberg stand in front of Congress and say, we're not a media company, that's going to be played for the next 30 years and say, see how this individual lied to us? And it's going to be embarrassing for them. They are 100% a media company. They know it. They know it. And they're lying and trying to minimize. America loves to forgive. Mm -hmm. What we hate is half measures. Martha Stewart didn't go to jail for insider trading. She went to jail for obstruction of justice. Right. This is where they will end up because they will be forced to is Mark Zuckerberg, and he should skip to this point right now. This is what happened is unacceptable, regardless of the cost. I'm going to make sure this never happens again. Oh, and by the way, we're a media company, and we accept our special role as being part of the fourth estate. He needs to show, in my view, that he's not only a global citizen, but an American citizen. Our, the, Facebook was weaponized by an intelligence unit of the Russian government. Bloomberg hasn't been weaponized by Russia. New York Times managed to keep us safe with $90 million in free cash flow, yet Facebook can't do it with $12 billion in free cash flow. This isn't about the realm of the possible. It's about the realm of the profitable. And when Google and Facebook stand in front of Congress and say it's not possible, what they're really saying is it's not it's not possible for us to do this while maintaining our profitability, which in their eyes is the impossible. So are, are, are you asking too much of a 30-year-old CEO who really doesn't have the breadth of life experience and the understanding of history to recognize his role in it? I, I'm not excusing non-behavior mm -hmm. um, or non-action. I'm saying, hey, this is—I don't care if he's the smartest guy in the room and the greatest learning machine ever— He's 31 or 32 years old. This is uh, 20 years past his seasoning. Yeah, but that's the role of the board. The board is supposed to look at the CEO and serve as fiduciaries not only for shareholders but all stakeholders. And when they see, okay, we have this incredible company that's shown incredible returns to shareholders, but it's also threatening our democracy, then we as a board have to ensure that we are representing our stakeholders with the right or the wrong CEO and coaching this guy. But this to me seems pretty basic. This can't happen again. I'm going to make sure it doesn't. Keep in mind, with $12 billion in free cash flow, they could hire 50,000 people to screen, identify right. controversial content or advertisers. They could spend a half a billion dollars a year on artificial intelligence technology to help these, these 10,000 screeners identify, mm -hmm. sort, and distill controversial content. And it would reduce their free cash flow by 10%. But to them... That qualifies as impossible. It's just absolutely not true that they couldn't do away with all. Do you realize the, the offense we're talking about? It was 
These ads were bought with a credit card and paid in rubles. This was literally and figuratively a red flag. It's not that hard to stop. <laughs> so we haven't talked about Twitter, which isn't on your list or in the book, other than mentioned in passing. Um, I know you have thoughts along social media about Twitter. What do you think? I, I don't know about you, but I've, I used to be a Twitter hater. And I think it's because I'm a little bit jealous of Jack Dorsey, and it pisses me off <laughs> that he gets to live as large as he lives while being a co-CEO. And as a board member of public companies and someone who thinks of themselves as a student of corporate governance, I think it's just insane that, again, this gross idolatry of youth would let a board to allow an individual in his 30s, I think he's 40 now, to be a co-CEO of a company. What do you say to the rest of people working there 50 hours a week? This guy's better than you at 25 hours a week. 89% or 90% of his net worth is at the other firm's square that he works out of the afternoon. So what do you know? That stock's gone up. Twitter's has not. So, and if you look at if you look at who works there, it's almost no one. Almost everybody has left. A lot of people, a lot of big names have, have departed Twitter. Um, well, Steve Jobs did it. He did it with Apple and Pixar. Why can't Jack Dorsey? I think it's a dangerous business strategy to assume you're Steve Jobs. <laughs> I just don't think that's a good board strategy. Maybe he's, but that's exactly what's happened. He's young. He wears a turtleneck. He has a lot of facial hair. You know, he's definitely a bright guy. Everyone's saying, oh, it's the reincarnation of Steve Jobs. That is a bad strategy from the board. Having said this, Twitter is relevant. Twitter is hugely relevant. Mm -hmm. I use the service of all the social media. I think it's the one I enjoy the most, Same maybe here. with the exception of YouTube. You're on it. You have, How many followers do you have now, Barry? Uh, 100,000. Okay, so you can communicate with the Rose Bowl my with a part, tweet. My partner has is coming up on a million. That's It's just incredible. This is downtown Josh Brown. Yes, right? correct. He's got great voice on Twitter, by Hilarious. the way. Hilarious. He gives great Twitter. He so, really does. He gives great tweets. So, Absolutely. But here's their challenge. The New York Times is super relevant. PBS is super relevant. BBC is super relevant. And they haven't created a ton of shareholder value. Is Twitter shaping up to be the New York Times and the sense that its relevance far outweighs its return to shareholders? I don't think it's poor. I don't think it's well managed. I don't think it's been that innovative in terms of the product. And they haven't figured out a killer app to really start growing the revenue. 280 characters. That's the killer app, right? Are you, is, has that changed anything for you? I, no. I, I just haven't started well, using it. Well, it's only it. a handful of people have access to it, and it, it's just a, uh, a test run. But the whole beauty of the service is here. Say what you have to say. You get 140 characters. And if it's too long, do a tweet storm, reply to yourself, but allow the, the consumer to decide if they want to read more than that. But Twitter right now is like Snap in that it's it seems to have hit a floor in that if floor it, or a ceiling? Well, I think it, I think the floor there. I believe Snap is going to go below, bust below ten bucks, and then be acquired by Google. I think mm -hmm. Facebook's hatred, and it is hatred for Evan Spiegel, is basically pushing Evan into the arms of Google. Mm -hmm. And Facebook, if it were to ever get below ten bucks a share, would also probably be acquired because Twitter. You mean not Facebook. Twitter? Excuse me. Because there's so thank you. There's so few platforms that have any sort of following like that in social media. And you have big players, including Apple and Google, that just haven't been able to figure out social. Yeah, Google Plus is that still around? I don't know if it got. I don't think they, it hasn't gotten else. shut down yet. Yeah, I don't. Occasionally, you click on a link and you see someone's Google Plus profile. And yet, and yet, Google Hangouts and some of the other technologies are great. They're great to do video conferencing and other things. It's it's. I, I give Google credit for throwing money at stuff, and if it doesn't work, you have to move on. Who's better at that than Jeff Bezos? Yeah, we're not failing enough. Keep trying stuff. Yeah, and they're getting to social with Twitch. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, technically, that's the only place that Am. well, there's a few, but Amazon is now, I mean, I keep going about Amazon, uh, capable of doing these Jedi mind tricks. Mm-hmm. So the value of Kroger's declines by a third between the time Amazon announces the acquisition of Whole Foods and closes. And this is a grocer that's one eleventh the size of Kroger. Right. So I believe Amazon could take down the value of any consumer company that's publicly traded by a third within 90 days just with press releases. It can look at someone and perform this Jedi-like mind trick and begin inflicting pain without even touching the industry. On Friday when they announced they were thinking about getting into drugstore, CVS and Walgreens declined 4 and 5% respectively. Even further down the food chain, the drug manufacturers declined because everyone is so scared of Amazon. So if Amazon put out a press release every day saying, you know what, we're going into overnight delivery. This is the seven, here's a picture of the 757s we've leased. Here's a, a, a map of all, the, of all the locations that make this incredible fulfillment network. You would see, I think, FedEx, DHL, and UPS lose 10 to $40 billion in market cap wow. within 30 days. So I can't imagine Amazon is happy with the 3% fee they have to pay credit card companies. Why hasn't Amazon rolled out a bank? I know they've rolled out their own credit card to capture some of that 3% back, Mm -hmm. but why not come up with a... And by the way, PayPal has now become tremendous in its size. Why not come up with a direct way to do banking so that they can cut out MasterCard, Visa, and Amex and capture some of that 3% for themselves. So I'll give you my answer, and then I want to hear your answer, because I think you're going to forget more about the financial industry than I'm ever going to know. I don't think it's if. I think it's when. Really? Yeah, I think they're going to go head-on. Prime credit card, prime payment. Why not? Prime mortgages. Alexa, send me four quotes for a mortgage. Alexa, write a check. Write a check to you know Comcast for pay an ACH whatever pay, it is. you know pay and they're going to go into the business. The only friction right now is they can't hire smart people fast enough and bandwidth or attention. I think that with Amazon, it's not what consumer sector they will be in. Here's the criteria: Is it more than ten billion dollars? Is it profitable? Yeah. Then it probably the question is what will they do? The question is what won't they do? They're mm. going to go after the biggest consumer sectors in the world. And banking has stuck its chin out. Banking really, to me, seems very ripe for disruption. So the only reason I would say they wouldn't do that, as far as I know, Walmart has been trying to build a bank for forever. And it hasn't worked. Uh, There's a regulatory set of hurdles that doesn't allow it to take place. There are rules that prevent some form of a retailer from owning them. I don't know the specifics of it, but Walmart has never been able to do it, which is why if you walk into a BJ's, a Costco, a Target, a Walmart. It's not Walmart Savings and Loan. It's some local bank that has a desk there, and you could get a credit card, a Walmart credit mm-hmm. card. But it's an affiliate card. It's not really Walmart running the show. And I'm assuming something similar is taking place with Amazon. I, I honestly don't know. But the strange thing, from an academic standpoint, one of the pillars of academic thought around business school is uh, Professor Prahala's notion, I think it was Michigan, um, on core competence. And that mm-hmm. is basically saying focus. Find what you're good at, be average at everything else, and stay focused. Amazon has totally blown that out of the water. If Nike had said, we are going to start filing patents to build warehouses in the sky, you'd say, that's ridiculous. If right. Starbucks said, we're going to spend $4.5 billion on original TV content, you'd say, that's insane. None of those things are insane for Amazon. Their businesses are no closer to those businesses than Starbucks or Nike. 
But we you, could, you could argue the streaming video prime and, and Amazon Music Services, hey, you're buying books and DVDs and CDs from them in the first place. Okay, we're going to move to digital. Grocery? It's, no, nothing. Uh, you know, it's just uh, home voice. Uh, these guys are filing, uh, they're filing patents for small drones that can reassemble as larger drones mm-hmm. to take bigger packages. They're talking about getting into drugs. They're talking about managing the pres- being the prescription benefit manager for companies. It's totally blown the notion of core competence out of the water. Right. And everywhere they seem to go, because in the analogy I would use is a war analogy, at the end of World War II, the Germans had better morale, better equipment, better trained officers, but the Allies had 38 gallons of gasoline for every one the Germans had because we cut off their supply routes. Amazon's the company that shows up with 38 gallons of gasoline. They can overwhelm any sector with cheap capital and expertise and great execution. But even if it doesn't work, even if they're unprofitable, it's a, you know, will Amazon, will Amazon be successful in banking, Barry? I don't know, but I know they'll create a ton of chaos, drop a ton of napalm, and burn a lot of villages finding out. I mean, they're going to absolutely wreak havoc in any industry before they even go there. They just, you, you saying credibly because of your position and your 110,000 followers that Amazon is clearly going into banking. If they just, just sort of nodded with a press release and said, we're looking at it. You'd see the Man. banking industry shed the whole sector. 10, 20, 30 billion in market cap in four trading hours. Wow. And access to capital is a key component of survival. So if you can begin squelching the oxygen of a company, taking the oxygen out of the room before you're even in the room, so that when you show up with your oxygen mask and start fighting these people, wow, it's, you know, let's starve them. Let's, let's suck the oxygen out of the room before we show up. That's what Amazon's now capable of doing. So last question before I get to some of my standard questions, and we don't have to do all of them because you've done them before. Uh, you have a command over the topic, over the, the subject matter that few people do. How do you take that, that academic lessons, how do you take your – your course planner for the year and turn that into a book because really the the book itself is an education about technology about business strategies about what the past 10 or 20 years were like what is that process like to convert everything that's in your head into 320 pages you've written a book yeah. You know what it's like. It's, it's it's miserable. It's like being in the Marines. You're glad you did it, but you know you right. probably wouldn't want to do it again. So you it's, say that now, but wait 10 years and yeah. the itch will start coming yeah, back. Yeah, that's right. It takes about a decade. That's right. The itch will come back. Uh, it, look, it, the key, and I think a lot about writing because this is my first book, the key is deadlines. Mm-hmm. I do believe you can force creativity. And I, I write Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday nights when my kids and wife are asleep. And I find just forcing yourself to write for three or four hours is a very, it's mm-hmm. a worth, and most people write in the morning. But what I did here is I went through each of the companies. Then I talked about um, what I thought are the key components of their success, how you would identify the fifth company, what can be learned. And then I talk a little bit about um, what a career advice for people in an, in an era of the four. And just how to, my goal, you know, as an academic, 
um, I have two goals. The first is to help others create economic security for them and their families, and the second is to be the most influential thought leader in the history of business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see how the second goes. <laughs> I hope you have a huge listenership, Barry, because I, I need some help on the second one. Well, well, last time you were on, I got emails for, I can't tell, for weeks after your, your appearance. So that. there was some resonance. It's not the show. It's not necessarily me. It's how does the guest present themselves in a way that other people you're being generous well but other people look this is a a shared that's the beauty of social is it's shared people said hey you're into tech you have to listen to galloway on riddle's show he just chews the scenery it's 50 percent luck it's 50 percent timing and the rest is talent that i've been super lucky because i chose to study and think a lot about these four companies and they've become part of the we've captured something with the zeitgeist here Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just much better to be lucky than it is to be By good. the way, congratulations, uh, oh, New thanks. York Times bestseller. Thanks right out much. of the bat. That, yeah, that's that fascinating. Good. All right, so let's jump to um, some of our favorite questions. Tell me something people don't know about your background. Wow. I graduated with a 2.27 GPA out of UCLA. How did you ever get into grad school? Uh, they took a chance on me. I owe the university. I owe... California taxpayers and the regents of the University of California, because of their generosity and irrational, you know, confidence in in me, a lot. I was uh, so I got very lucky. Fran Hill, the director of admissions of Haas School of Business, led me with a 2.27 GPA, and um, I'm just a, I was born at the right time in the right place. California, getting uh-huh. to go to the great, in my opinion, one of the greatest upward lubricants in the history of of uh, economic, you know, of, of UC? our society is the University of California. Right. I mean, I, you went to public school. I went to SUNY Stony Brook with grades I would never be able to get into today, yeah. and I went to um, Benjamin Cardoza School of Law, part of Yeshiva University. My grades, they would laugh at me if I applied yeah. today with those That's grades. Right. So it was lucky being at a different part of the the demographic That's exactly boom. Right. Got really so lucky. I, you were in a in a valley, six, born in sixty one. Not quite a boomer, not quite a Gen X, and yeah. lower um, application numbers. Yeah, so terrible grade, terrible grades as a as an undergrad. I was a decent test taker, so I kind of skated by on my yeah. SATs and. I had bad grades, but I tested poorly. <laughs> so, so that worked out well. Let's talk about books, since we referenced yeah. your book. Tell us about some of your favorite books. Yeah. By the way, this is the most popular question that people. Always so, ask about uh, *Sapiens* is a wonderful mm-hmm. book. Yuval Harari. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm, have you read the follow-up book? Uh, I haven't. Homo, I heard, Homo Deus? I haven't. I heard it's not as good. I think Sapiens. It's a little darker. Oh, really? Yeah, it's I'd a little darker. I'd probably like it then. Uh, maybe. Um, so my, some of my colleagues have written some great books at Stern. Adam Alter wrote a book called Irresistible uh-huh, about our, how tech companies and consumer companies make their products addictive. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really instructive and also with a couple chapters on what you do with, with your kids and building some bounds around your life. Um, uh, Anindo Ghost. A movie, a book called Tap. We've had him on. It's fascinating about the mobile technology and how it's changing everything. Good stuff there. And Arun Sundaraj and the share economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are all kind of the, that's, those are the most recent ones. Uh, also a guest on the show. There so you you, you've done the full NYU Stern. There you uh, go. Anything, um, you ever read fiction? Anything not nonfiction? 
You know, I'm embarrassed to say it. I read so much for business. I don't have a lot of, I don't read a lot for leisure. It's not something. I have the same issue. Uh, by the way, I, you know, this sounds terrible. I love television. I watch a ton of TV and it's not something I'm proud of, but. But television is great today. It's not when we were this kids is growing a golden up age and it was TV. junk. Yeah. The, a talent, it, capital, best. This is a golden age of it, television. It's an embarrassment of riches. Yeah. There's so much stuff. Watch Taboo. Taboo. Haven't yeah. seen that. Fantastic. Really? Taboo. Yeah. Um, what do you watch on Amazon Prime? Anything in particular? Oh, or God. Netflix? What are your? Uh... You know, I'm the I'm the same as I'm the same as I've been watching Odd Mom Odd Mom Out, which I find is hilarious. I'm a uh-huh. huge Game of Thrones fan. I mean, there's just so much good TV on all the time. Key, I think the key to being a happier person is exercise and more television. Exercise and more television. Exercise usually, and more usually television. Usually, it's exercise and more sleep, but yeah. but that'll work. And let me get to my last two questions, which. Um, I think are the most interesting questions. Oh, the Vietnam. Are you watching the Vietnam documentary, I, Ken Burns? DVRing it, and I got like 19. Powerful. You know, I have a, so much stuff on the DVR that it's just. Powerful. Really? Really strong. Better than Civil War? Because some people right have said there. that. Really? Yeah. Uh, it's, that's, I will get to it eventually. Yeah, I'm still only standing. halfway through um, the, the four-part series on, on music with, um, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Um it was. It's really fascinating. From the, uh, I'll, I'll I'll edit in the name. I'll I'll figure it out. Um, it you deal with a lot of students with millennials. What sort yeah. of advice would you give someone who comes to you and says, "Hey, I'm thinking about a, a career in technology or business." What would you advise them? Uh, find a company with a recurring revenue. Finding a find a place that is like getting a second MBA. Within a couple years, you know, don't. Give up on the myth of balance. In this economy, it's so competitive. You may know someone who has a food blog, volunteers at the ASPCA, stays in great shape. Assume you're not that person. Devote five to ten years to doing nothing but working your ass off. And I realize that's not aspirational, but I don't know anyone who's successful who hasn't worked their ass off for 10 or I mean, literally worked nonstop for 10 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so prepare yourself for that. Try and stay in decent shape. I think it's key to be physically fit and for confidence and strong while you're in school. And as soon as you can, try and get executive-level sponsorship. And if you don't have executive-level sponsorship, someone who takes an irrational passion in your well-being and your progress at work, switch companies. The key is finding someone who's going who's gonna, to you know, help you and mentor, mentor. you and, and provide, mm-hmm. provide cloud cover. And, and your job in your 20s is to find something you're good at, not find something you're passionate about. Because if you're good at it, the accoutrements of success will make you passionate about it. And then finally, what do you know about technology, digital strategies, business ideas today that you wish you knew 20 or so years ago? By Amazon? Um, <laughs> you know, I don't think of myself as a technologist. I think a lot of these technologies are huge head fakes. I saw someone on Bloomberg TV when I was talking about VR. I think virtual reality is a head fake. I think mm-hmm. Internet of Things is a big head fake, I think. Uh, 3D printing. I mean, there's just so many head fakes. The two technologies that I think are really exciting, where I was gonna, what I would invest, overinvest, would be voice mm-hmm. and messaging. I think those two, and then uh, not virtual reality, but augmented reality. It, Microsoft is big on that these yeah. days. By the and by the way, we didn't talk about them. They're the fifth horseman. Probably one of the best performing companies, best managed companies in the last 24 months. But, anyways, um, I would I would be very focused on trying to find er- in areas in and around voice and how to take businesses to messaging. We have been speaking with Professor Scott Galloway of NYU Stern School of Business. 
author of The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, Bloomberg.com, or wherever finer podcasts are sold, and you can see any of the other 160 or so such podcasts we've had previously. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps to put this podcast together. Medina Parwana is my audio producer and engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is head of research. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>